like we said, we're, we're talking about Psalm 51, and, and the Psalms are, are, are my favorite portion of Scripture, you know, if a pastor is allowed to have a favorite portion, mine is in Psalms, uh, and genuinely so, right? And I'm so thankful, I'm so happy that we were able to see, sing part of that Psalm this morning, that we were able to sing the themes of this song, because the Psalms truly are these prayers, they are these songs that have been written thousands of years ago by people who worshipped our God, who have gone before us. And when we open up the scripture and the Psalms and we begin to read these prayers, we're joining in with a chorus of saints who have gone before us, who have read these same words, who have sang these Psalms, who have walked these same paths in their heart. And, and that's what these prayers are, is they're a, if we let them, they can shape our hearts. They can be a path that our souls can walk down, that we can be transformed by. And it's in doing so that we find words to express our inward states of our hearts. We find a salve for our woes. We find healing, and we find ourselves ultimately brought to the throne of God. And so that's, that's what I want to do today, is I want us to journey through this psalm together, to, to look at it, to uh, let it be a prayerful experience. So I'm going to read Psalm 51 in, in, it, in, in its entirety for us, and you can, I would encourage you to do what is going to be most helpful for you in letting that to begin to sink into your heart, whether that's reading along in your own Bible or following along on the screen, or perhaps even just closing your eyes and imagining and just letting the words kind of soak into you, just to just kind of let them wash over you as a prayer. And, and imagine perhaps even, what could David's face have looked like when he said these words? What was his posture? So with that, we're going to look at Psalm 51. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. It's an immensely dense psalm. There's a lot going on there. It's, it, if you walk with David, he, he starts in one place and he ends in a completely different place by the end of those 19 verses. And so if you're the type of person who really likes the kind of outline, I'll give you a brief way of just kind of breaking this psalm down into some chunks that are kind of just a way of looking at the themes that we find here. Uh, in verses 1 through 2, we find this approach where David is coming forward and he's saying, Lord, I'm coming to you and this is what I need, right? And this is where we find our main theme. And then verses 3 through 9 is David's ongoing plea for forgiveness. He's saying, Lord, wash me, cleanse me. 10 through 17, David begins to talk about he wants a transformed of heart. He wants purity. He wants himself to be transformed into a new person. And then 18 through 19 is sort of a cl closing prayer and promise encompassing all of the people of Israel. And so I want to walk through the psalm, like I've said, and, and I want to not so much preach this psalm this morning as, as much as I want this to be a prayer, as much as I want us to be praying together as we hear God's word, if we're listening to this, could we be praying for one another, be saying, Lord, what is it that I need to hear this morning? Lord, be doing your work among us with your spirit. And so first, we're going to jump into and we're going to look at that description. Because it says that this is for the director of the Psalm of Music, Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Right? That's the context. That's the setting for this psalm. And there is perhaps... No darker time in David's life than perhaps that season, that time where he committed these sins. Because if you were to look at the life of David, you'd find that he pays in, for the consequences of these sins with the rest of his life. His family is marked by violence and disunity and trouble, all coming out of this consequence of this sin. And so here, in this psalm, we get to see the prayer that David prays to God after all of that, after he is confronted with his sin and he realizes how much he has messed up. This is an immensely intimate psalm, and we get to look at it. We get to watch David walk through repentance after having committed absolutely horrendous things. And this is encouraging for us, because if David at his lowest, can find God and can find hope and transformation there, then surely there is hope and transformation for us all. And so this psalm has in view, is, it's this relationship between man and God. And, and that is what I want us to do today, is I want us to be doing these two things. And, 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 and this is what the Christian life often amounts to, is often includes, is to first look inward, and then to look upward and outward to God. 
Right? First to, to look inward, as David does, and then to look outward to our Savior. And so this is the relationship that brings us into the first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And when you're reading the Psalms, the Psalms are, are Hebrew poetry, and they don't rhyme like our English poetry rhymes. But they do rhyme with ideas. They have a repetition of themes and words. And so in these first two verses, we see three sets of three. Right? We see this, David begins off by describing who God is, by naming his characteristics, saying, God have mercy. God is a merciful God. God is a God of loving steadfastness. He is ongoingly merciful. And he's compassionate. He comes alongside and has mercy and understanding with our frailties. This is the God that David is praying to. This is the character of our God that we follow. And then after giving us these three descriptions of who God is and what his character is like, David gives us three descriptions of his sin. He calls it his sin a transgression, right? A crossing of a boundary, doing something he should not have. It's an iniquity. It's a perversion of what was good into something bad. It's a sin. It's something that falls short of God's good standard. And David asks three separate times, Lord, wash me, cleanse me, and blot it out. That's what David is seeking here. David is saying, Lord, please forgive me. And so we have these three sets of threes. We have a picture of God and man, a holy, perfect God and a sinful man in the relationship between the two. Uh, I found a quote that I thought was particularly apt in summarizing this point. This is uh, Martin Luther, and he's summarizing... um, St. Bernard, when he says this, he says that knowledge of self without the knowledge of God leads to despair. So knowledge of God without the knowledge of self leads to presumption. That's a, that's a heck of a sentence, right? It's pretty, pretty densely packed there. Like, what does that mean? Knowledge of self without knowledge of God leads to despair. If I were to know myself, to know my own weaknesses, but not know that God is compassionate, that God is merciful, that God is forgiving, ultimately I have to despair because I can't find out how to fix myself. But if I know God, and I know all about him, but I don't actually know how messed up I am, I'm in a place of presumption, a place where I think God's cool and I'm I'm pretty cool too. These are the two places in the Christian life we can be stuck. We can find ourselves in a place where we're blocked in by shame, blocked in by lies, and, and, and we believe that we are defined by our sins and that God surely cannot have compassion on me. God surely cannot transform me. Surely I've gone too far. And we, we downplay and we miss and we let the lies tell us that God isn't compassionate. Or the other place we can become stuck is we can become into a place where we know about God and 
we feel superior. We feel like we've arrived. We become blind to our own struggle, to our own sinful inclinations. And we think that the gospel is primarily for others and not primarily for ourselves. And so how do we get out of these two places where we can get stuck in the Christian life? I think it's to walk this path in this psalm. It's to do what David does here. It's to wrestle with this truth. And that truth is that there is no sinner that is beyond the forgiving and transforming grace of God. That's what I want to say again and again this morning. That's what I think this psalm is getting at. It's that there is no one, no man, woman, or child, no one who is so broken, so down, so sinful, that God cannot reach them, that God cannot come and do a transforming work in their life. And I want to affirm that again and again, as God does throughout Scripture. And so first, we have in picture, right, these, these three statements, these talking about God and man, and it's this relationship. And so I want to talk about and go into these next verses and look at, look at David. What does David say about himself in these next couple verses? Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Notice what isn't in those verses, right? As David is describing his sin. There's no excuses. David doesn't say, but God, you you don't understand how much stress I was under. God, you don't understand how big a temptation that was. He doesn't excuse, downplay, or justify his sin. He just owns it up front. He says, God, I know I have sinned. It's ever before me. I see it clearly. And then David goes beyond that. He doesn't just say that my actions were sinful. He says that his internal heart His nature is bent towards sin. That his inclination is not towards God, but rather towards his own sinful desires. Look with me at what he says in verse 4 again. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's kind of a, a shocking verse. Right? As, we, as we run into that verse, we might at first say, well, is that really true, David? Because what about Bathsheba? What about dead Uriah? Like, surely they were sinned against in this whole situation. Is it really true that, David, you've only sinned against God? What does he mean when he says that? Well, first let's ask two questions. First is, what is sin? Like, what, what makes a thing a sin? How do we even have sin? If we were to think about this in the context of a society, of like a government or a town, David has most certainly committed a crime. But it's only a sin when it's in the context of a relationship with God. The only reason we have sin is because there is a God who has told us what is sin and what is not. And then the second thing I would say is that any time I sin against my neighbor, it is always ultimately against God. 
When I sin against another human being, I'm sinning against someone who God has said, I have made this person in my image. They have innate value, worth, and meaning. And when I sin against that person, I'm sinning against the image of God. I'm coming in and I'm trying by my own human efforts to thwart God's good grace and pleasure towards that person by doing something harmful against them, by dishonoring them. And so all actions against another person, all sin ultimately leads to God. And that's what this psalm's about. The psalm isn't talking about David's relationship with anybody else. The only thing that's in picture here is a sinner and God. And David owns up to it. David gives us three statements about his sin. He says he knows that he sinned. He knows that his sin is only against God. And that his disposition, his inner heart, leans towards sin. And the question that this begs is, can we do as David has done? Can we ourselves pause and reflect and say, God, I am aware of my sin. God, I I can name my sin. Or do we like to kind of hide it with different words and say, well, that's just a struggle, or that was just me being stressed, or that was me just letting off a little bit of steam? I think that's a struggle. It's hard because it's, it's hard work to do that, to be honest with ourselves, to not justify, right? But I think it's necessary. Otherwise, it leads us in a place of presumption, a place where we think, Perhaps I'm better than others because surely I don't have sin. But David, David doesn't do that. David owns up to it. He's honest with God about his condition. And then he comes to God and he says, Lord, cleanse me of it. Look at what he begins to say, starting in verse 7. David gives us three requests For his cleansing. He says, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed hide your face, or let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Right? Do you notice those three words, those three requests that David had? He said, Lord, cleanse me wash me, and blot out. If you look at verses 1 and 2, he's making the same request. It's the same three. And so here he's saying, he's, Lord, cleanse me, wash me, and blot out my sins. I want to talk about two of those three. I want to talk about the first one, cleansing, and the last one, blotting out. So the first one, that cleanse me of my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop. What does he mean by that? What does cleansing mean? Well, when I thought about cleansing, like the first thing that popped into my mind is kind of that fad kind of dieting that's going around of doing, going on like a juice cleanse or something like that, trying to get the toxins out of your body by like only eating like one thing. Um, and that's actually not too far off from what David's getting at here. He says, God, I literally want you to de-sin me. God, I want you to take the sin that's in me and wring me out like a sponge so that it's no longer in me, but it's been removed from me. I was talking with a good friend of mine who is an Orthodox Christian, and he was explaining to me something that I thought was really powerful, something that I think maybe we've missed a bit of a nuance with. 
And, and they practice confession. And he was telling me that after he's gone to confession and he's, he's confessed a sin, that he's not really supposed to talk about it anymore. Like in, if in conversation he's going to bring something up, he's like, oh, actually I've confessed that. And, and, it's, and God's dealt with it, and so I'm not going to talk about it. Talk about taking seriously what it says, that God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. That when Jesus Christ said on the cross that it is finished, he meant it. Because God doesn't keep a rule book. God doesn't keep a ledger of all of your wrongs and run around holding it over you. Rather so much, that's just us. That's just ourselves walking around beating ourselves up over past mistakes and regrets. We're beating ourselves up and defining ourselves by sin that God has already forgiven, that God has already forgiven and we've sought forgiveness for. And we're letting it continue to define our identity. Let us be a people who are willing to speak truth to each other. When we find a close friend of ours, a family member, beating themselves up over something they've already sought forgiveness for, Let us speak truth in that and say, no, that doesn't define you anymore. Because Christ said it is finished. The Lord isn't keeping records, so stop keeping record on yourself. Stop beating yourself up and not living as a child of God. I think there's something super powerful there. And then there's that cleansing. He wants to be cleansed, but he wants to be cleansed with hyssop. And this is a familiar passage, and I've always read it, and I've never understood what hyssop was. In case anybody else was on the same page as I was, hyssop is a, it's kind of a bush. It's a plant that they grew in the area, and it's a really stiff bush. It was really, uh, they would take the branches of it, and they could use it as a brush because of how stiff it was. And the first time that we see hyssop mentioned is in Exodus, at at the time when the Israelites are getting ready to leave Egypt. It's at the 10th plague. And It's here, if you remember the story, right? They take an innocent, unblemished lamb and they sacrifice it. And then they took the hyssop branches and dipped it into the blood of the lamb. And then they took the branches and they applied the blood of the sacrifice to the doorposts of their house so that the plague would pass over them. The hyssop branches are what the priests would use to apply the blood of an innocent sacrifice for the covering of sin. So what David is saying here, he says, Lord... I need you to be my priest. I need an innocent sacrifice to cover my blood because I don't have a sacrifice to bring. I need you to apply the blood of an innocent sacrifice to me for my cleansing. It is the blood that will cleanse me because the Bible says that there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And on this side of the cross, we know that that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. We can say, behold, look at the cross. There is the lamb who was slain, who has come to take away the sins of the world, who's by his wounds that we are healed. That Jesus Christ is the one who has come to heal us, to come deal with our sins, to cleanse us. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ took your sins and it was nailed to the cross with him. And when he was buried in the grave for three days, and when he rose from the grave, he left those sins behind because he put an end to them. He put an end to the power of sin and death through his own death. 
And he conquered it when he rose from the grave. And in that resurrection, he has a new life that he's imparted to us. This is the gospel. This is why we sing. This is why we gather. This is who we are. This is our identity. It can be said like this, that your sin is taken away from you in the death of Jesus. And in the resurrection of Jesus, you are given new life. It's that two parts of the gospel. It's that your sin has been removed and then you have been given new life. Right? When we miss one, we get something wrong. We've got to deal with both. We need our sin taken away and then we need something giving in its place. We need a new life, a new person. And that's what I want to talk about in this next part where it says David is asking for his sin to be blotted out. What does he mean when he wants to have his sin blotted out so that he can't see it anymore? I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of a video I'd seen on the internet. I spend way too much time on the internet, way too much time watching videos. But there was this video, and I thought this was really fascinating. There's these artists, and they'll go around, and they will find graffiti that's like hateful or, or, or wrong or disgusting or inappropriate, and they'll cover it up. And, and I remember this one particular video of this artist. There was a swastika that was been painted on this wall. And he comes up and he has all of his paint tools and his paint cans. And he pulls out and he starts to paint, put paint up on the wall. But he's not just putting up paint to cover it over. Right? He's not just kind of hiding it necessarily. What he's doing is he's making a new painting. He's taking the lines that were there and he's transforming them. He's making them a part of a bigger picture so that when you look at that wall, you no longer see the hateful image that was there, but you see a beautiful mural. He's transformed that image into something wholly new. And that's what God wants to do with us. God wants to come in and transform our lives. He wants to work on us so that when people look at us, they no longer see our sin, they see our Savior. They see a new person inside of us, that we are truly becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That we can truly say, I am a son, I am a daughter, I am a child of the God Most High. That I have been given new life. That those sins are being made anew. That if you can see a sin, the only purpose it serves is to point to how great my Savior is. This is the gospel. This is the transforming power that Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice has for us. He wants to move us from being crushed, like it says in verse 8. His bones were crushed. Lord, bring me, move me to a place of joy, of celebrating New life. And David continues on in this theme. Look in verse 10. David continues to talk about this idea of a new heart. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's one kind of salient point I want to bring out of those couple verses right there. And, 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 and it's to notice what David isn't talking about. What David hasn't mentioned in this psalm so far. David, David isn't praying about a sin problem. He's praying about a heart problem. 
David hasn't mentioned lust. David hasn't mentioned deceit. He does have one verse where he mentions blood guiltness. But primarily, David isn't talking about his externals. He's talking about his internals. Because a sin problem we can put rules around. We can handle, we can talk about, we can try modifying our behavior to manage a sin problem. But only God can transform a heart problem. You can tie yourself up and lock yourself in a room and never sin, but still have a heart problem. And and David has got that in view. He says, Lord, I don't just need to change my behavior. I need to change myself from the inside out. I need a new person because my actions are an overflow of my heart. Because, Lord, I lost sight of your joy. The joy of of your salvation, I lost sight of that. I was looking for satisfaction. I was looking for happiness everywhere else. I thought I could have it if I could go and do this. But all I found was death. Lord, bring me close to you. The only way I'm going to be transformed is by being close to you. By having your Holy Spirit work on my heart. Doing the surgery that only you can do. That ought to be our prayer. That's my prayer. Oh, oh to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. How apt in prayer. Is that not our heart cry? Lord, I feel like I'm prone to wander from you. I love you. It is with you that I find fullness and joy. But still my heart wanders. Take my heart and seal it for your kingdom. Seal it to be with your people that I might not stray. Lord, keep me in your joy. Keep me by your side. And this moves us to song. I don't know about you, but this just makes me want to sing. And that's what David talks about in the next couple verses. Starting in verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. He says, Lord, open my lips. Make me to sing of your goodness. Right? Behind every witness, behind every testimony, is a sinner who has found the transforming grace of God. I cannot tell the story of God and his forgiveness without telling of how God has transformed me. Let us be a people who speak openly and without shame of what God is doing in our lives, how how he is transforming us, how there is no room for shame because Jesus Christ has forgiven us, because God has compassion and it is great and it is steadfast. What is David talking about? He says, I'm going to teach your ways, O God, so that sinners will turn back to you. What are those ways? What are the ways of God that turn sinners back, that tell sinners to come near to God? It's the ways of God. It's God's compassionate ways. It's his forgiving ways. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. 
It is his character, it's who he is that drives us to him. If you find yourself in a place where you feel you are stuck in sin and shame, where you feel like, I've had this sin problem for so long, or I feel defined by this, or surely if anyone were to know how sinful I truly am in my heart, of how even the good things I do, I secretly do because I'm prideful. If anyone were to truly see that, surely I would be shunned, surely God cannot accept me. And I would say, in the Bible it says that God says that he will have compassion on those he chooses to have compassion on. You don't get to say no to God's compassion. You don't get to say no to God's mercy. God said, I have died for you. I sent my son to pay for your sins. I get to say, if you're too far gone, and he will not say that. There is no sinner who is beyond the reach of God's transforming and forgiving grace. There is no one who is beyond that. No one who cannot be transformed. No one who is bound by shame. Because when we are in the presence of God, there is no voice to the lies. There is no room. There is no place for Satan to accuse. Because there stands Jesus Christ on our behalf. I want to finish by looking at these last couple verses and point us one more time. One more time shall we look up and look to Christ. Verse 16 says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David has no sacrifice. He has no sacrifice to bring before the Lord except his contrite heart. And so we too today have no sacrifice. We have no sacrifice, no set of deeds, no set of rules, nothing we can do, no good works can we bring to get ourselves out of the problem that we find ourselves in. We have nothing to bring but ourselves as a living sacrifice. We have nothing to claim except for the blood of Christ shed for me on the cross. By faith, we are united to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. By faith, our sin is removed from us and we are given a new life. We are transformed daily by God's Holy Spirit. There is no sinner who is beyond the reach of God's transforming and forgiving grace. We are in need of it daily. Whether you find yourself stuck in either place, God calls you and beckons you to him, to know him again, know him afresh. Rejoice in his joy and in the joy of his salvation. I would encourage you um, to perhaps take some time this week or whenever you find time to pray over the psalm, to open up, to read it aloud. Perhaps as you go through the psalm, notice Find the words that are difficult to say, where where you find yourself, your own heart getting stuck. Maybe you you find yourself stuck in a place like eight, where you feel that you've been crushed, but you don't yet have that joy of your forgiveness. 
Perhaps you've wandered and you've said, Lord, create again in me a new heart. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I would encourage you to walk through this psalm. And then the last thing I would encourage you is to say the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that most of us know by heart. Because what it says, what does it say after it says, Lord, today give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. Because we need forgiveness as daily as we need our bread. We need to be transformed anew. We need to be reminded that I have not grown beyond the gospel. No one goes farther than this in the Christian life. It's this reminder that I am in desperate need of a Savior, and I have one who is compassionate and merciful, who is transforming me into a new person.